0: Elvis Duran once said, Halloween is not only about putting on a costume, but it's also about finding the imagination and costume within ourselves. This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the everyman gaming podcast. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. And today we are talking about the Halloween Dungeon. A bespoke gaming experience. Now, what do we mean by that? A bespoke gaming
1: experience? Well, bespoke is a uh, really hoity-toity word that basically means something made in a small boutique to order. Something that's produced on an exclusive basis. And usually that's kind of the appeal of a bespoke item, is that it's created exclusively by and for a specific clientele.
0: Today we're talking about My Halloween Dungeon. Every year during the month of October, I run a Halloween dungeon. I try and get as many different groups as I can to run through it. This was the
1: fourth annual one this year, and it's an interesting gaming experience because every year it's this Halloween-themed dungeon that has, you know, a lot of horror movie tropes in it and puzzles and things inspired by Halloween horror and the genre in general. What is the uh, purpose of this sort of one-off dungeon experience?
0: Well, there's a few different reasons why I do this. One, first and foremost, I love Halloween.
1: And who does it?
0: Two, it gives me a good chance to play with people that I don't normally get to play with. There's a lot of people that I like gaming with that I either don't have enough time to commit to a campaign or they live far away and we don't have matching schedules. I think the biggest thing, though, is that it gives... People that I know, something to talk about and look forward to in Halloween. Way back in the day, people used to play modules and then discuss with other players what they did during that module, what they did during that adventure.
1: Right, a lot of people had experience with, for example, the Keep on the Borderlands or the Tomb of Horrors, all those those sort of uh, memorable dungeon experiences that different groups might have played in different ways, but all fundamentally played the same game. This is a great opportunity. I know speaking as a player in this game that it's a great opportunity to see how other people approach the same problem that I had to deal with and looked at these things from different perspectives that I did and what they struggled with versus what I struggled with.
0: And today we're going to be talking about this to let you, our listeners, in on this wonderful experience and perhaps uh, inspire you to do something similar. So let's just Start right out. Okay, well, let's start with the first one. Uh, Can you give us a
1: quick, brief history of this Halloween dungeon? This is our fourth annual one. So give us a rundown of kind of the ongoing meta plot of this game.
0: This is the fourth year I've done it in this way. In years past, I used to just run a one-off dungeon as close to Halloween as possible and get whoever I'm gaming with at the time to play in a Halloween game. But then, four years ago, I hit on this idea to just run as many different groups as I can through a short, four-hour-long dungeon. Uh, It started with the Temple of the Grinning God. That was an adventure themed around going through, essentially, a jack-o'-lantern. Everyone was cursed and got turned into jack-o'-lanterns if they didn't defeat it in time. And the end boss was a giant orange beholder that looks kind of like a jack-o'-lantern. Right. The second year was the Court of the Scarecrow King. In between the first and second years, I ran a campaign for a group of people up at the local card shop and the game world that they played in, I decided, yeah, that's that's where my Halloween dungeons have been taking place. And I dubbed it the Lands of Eternal Autumn, and the second year was the Court of the Scarecrow King. The Scarecrow King had risen to power and was keeping the seasons from shifting. And the idea was that... The player characters had to go through these mini dungeons to unlock his power and be able to defeat him.
1: Right. I don't remember ever fighting the Scarecrow King in that because I do remember going through. Uh, I believe I think two of the mini dungeons actually, but I don't remember ever actually facing the Scarecrow King.
0: Yeah, no one actually did that year. I only had four groups that actually ended up playing. I had a number of people who were interested in it, but through scheduling conflicts and through me not having enough time, it didn't pan out out. After that, I started taking off time, taking vacation time in the month of October just to be able to run this dungeon. The third year was titled Dragon's Lair Trick or Treat. The adventurers were hired by the eponymous scarecrow king to go find this abandoned dungeon where a dragon used to be but he he has since been killed and now his horde must be there somewhere and so the player characters have to go and find this dungeon and raid it of all of its goodies
1: right which uh involved if i remember we kind of had to go door to door through these different portions of the dungeon seeking the treasure there so we could proceed to the final step of the dungeon right yep Uh, so it was a trick-or-treat and that was the one that ended with us reviving the dragon and me being absolutely immolated by it instantly. Yep. I did tend to die to the bosses in these a lot.
0: This year was entitled The War on Halloween. (laughs) The resurrected dragon god was waging kind of a civil war against the Scarecrow King, and the player characters had to pick which side of this war they were going to be fighting on. And the player characters went through and tried to dethrone whoever they were going against, and then change the fate of the lands of Eternal Autumn. This year was the end of the story arc that's been going for these four years. I don't know exactly what I'm going to be doing for next year, but I plan on running some sort of Halloween dungeon.
1: Is it going to have any continuity with this current one necessarily, or are you still in the the air about that?
0: My thought is that everything that has gone on uh, this year and the past a few years was one story, and that players don't need to have played through any of those, and so I'm going to be presenting it as a fresh new world, a fresh new story. There might be some continuity. I might keep some of the background, but I don't necessarily know if I'm going to yet.
1: Okay, now, obviously our listeners can't see this, but we're definitely going to put some pictures up on our blog and on the Facebook page about it. But uh, you actually made some pretty striking uh, puzzle parts for this game with tactile components and, and actual like physical parts to them. Uh, the one I'm holding in my hand right now and kind of playing around with was um, sort of your Lament configuration from the uh, Hellraiser, themed portion of the uh that was the second dungeon right the court of the scarecrow king yep uh where we had to uh we ended up assembling this puzzle box that you made this uh clever little puzzle box and uh having to fight obviously a centibite comes out when you finish it because that's, that's how it works so we had to fight a chitin, and that was that was really good and you can't see this obviously through the podcast but it's got some really good quality to it. Where did you come up with the inspiration to make this little puzzle box?
0: Well, most of the puzzles that I have, I I want there to be some physical aspect of it. I find that having things that the player characters can touch is really important for this type of immersive game.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually it does contribute a lot to the experience another one I've got in front of me is this uh, puzzle where we had to arrange a group of monsters based on their relative strength as determined by their challenge rating in the objective but abstractly i think we were just instructed like which is the weakest which is the strongest there was kind of a poem or something that went with that it's a couple years ago so i don't remember but you could have just made cards but you you put them on these like wooden tiles so that they've got a little you can kind of hear that you got a little bit of heft to them uh, which is kind of nice. it makes it made for the, a better tactile experience and it made it so that uh, it didn't feel like one person could just hold them all in their hand and like arrange them like a hand of cards and spread them out.
0: Once again, as I said, I really like having the physical bits. You asked about the about the cube there. That right there was just this idea okay, I want the players to go through a hellraiser type dungeon okay well i don't have the ability to physically craft a puzzle box but i can just assemble a cube and try and make it so you have to slide the bits together and i think it worked out decently well there's what four pieces there's
1: uh four pieces and it, it's arranged so that some of the pieces if you put them in first you can't get other pieces into place quite right But um, it all slides together fairly easy. It's not an exceptionally complex or difficult puzzle. I think we just uh, handed it to Beck or something and she just put it together and we just watched. Because obviously it's it's small so it's one of those too many cooks situations. You can't really everybody have their hands in it. But it is a really cool puzzle and it's really cool how it comes together. And we all knew exactly what was going to happen when we finished putting it together, of course. You're like, hey, chains start flying up and we're like, yeah, there it is. <laughs> so
0: when designing these dungeons, I don't feel that subtlety is, too, <laughs> is needed too much. I mean, just paint the whole dungeon with the theme. Yeah, just
1: paint it black, right? That's how you do. When you build the puzzles, uh, one question I had was, what's your methodology for coming up with the puzzles? Now, I know you took some inspiration from some other places. We talked about that one puzzle you had, the uh, tarot card puzzle, was it?
0: Yeah, I I have a tarot card puzzle. It was from this year. I made 21 major arcana cards, put on the same type of wood as the ones that John has there, and you just have to arrange them in a three by three grid. And the core of that puzzle, I just lifted straight from Silent Hill 3. Yeah, which is funny because that's the only...
1: It's the only Silent Hill I haven't played, and when I was thinking Silent Hill 3, I was like, the room doesn't have a puzzle like that in it, but I only played, I played Silent Hill 1, I played Silent Hill 2, and then I skipped straight to the room, which is Silent Hill 4, so somehow in my mind, I keep thinking that's Silent Hill 3, and then you're like, it's a puzzle from Silent Hill 3, I'm like, what are you talking about? But yeah, it was just kind of a wordplay puzzle, right, like with uh, with looking for letters and stuff like that, and... It was great because I felt like that puzzle had a million red herrings in it because there were so many different things we were trying to be like well I mean this one sounds like it's about death and uh oh this one might go in the corner because it looks like it's got a mark on the corner and stuff like that
0: let me uh let me describe this puzzle in detail for the listeners there were the major arcana from the tarot deck printed I believe I Took these pictures directly from the Rider Waite tarot deck. And I printed them out on sticker sheets, which you can get. uh, They're they're just name tags. And put them on these painted black pieces of wood. And then along with it, I have these little... They're they're wooden tags. They're wooden gift tags. You you can see the hole where... Yeah, where you're supposed to attach them to a gift or something. Yeah, and I I printed out a list of nine words. Like, let me me grab one right here. It's a seek scramble, tug, tackle, strive, sweat, labor, attempt, and jockey.
1: It's about doing things, right? Yeah, that's kind of where we were going with that.
0: Well, one of the things I did with this is the the word that you're supposed to focus on on this one is strive. The solution is strive has an I and a V in it, and IV is four. You put the four, tarot card that's Roman numeral four into the center spot. You find that it's the center spot because the nine words are arranged in a three-by-three three grid. Also, I included a little black light, and if you shine it on this tag, the word strive glows. Yeah, it's highlighted. If you shine the black light on the cards, a number of them just fluoresce under the black light. And I, I like using black lights with puzzles. I, I like a number of escape rooms when they've done stuff like that, and it's it's really interesting to me. But yeah, th- this puzzle was kind of a pared-down puzzle in Silent Hill 3, and I just expanded it. I I included all of the major arcana and then instead of just giving you one word, strive, I gave you a bunch of words so you had to try and figure out which one was important or, as a lot of people did, try to figure out a theme behind them.
1: Yeah, and you also, uh, on a couple of them, you had words that either did not fit at all, like they didn't match up or they were words that looked like they might be misspellings of other words, like I think you had sextet on one that appeared to be about navigation, and Jacob got really hung up on that because he thought it should be sextant, and you're like, I I wrote what I wrote. It's it's right on the feet, and he's like, yeah, but sextant isn't spelled like that, and you're like, no, it's not. And, it, and there were a lot of little red herrings there. There were a lot of ways to misinterpret the puzzle and kind of get lost in that.
0: Well, um, well, one of the tags, it was all undead-themed monsters, except for one of them was Balor, which is a demon.
1: Balor and wasn't
0: Ghoul on there twice? Is yep. that what I remember? Yeah,
1: yeah. So, all things they'll throw you off if you think that that's what you're looking for in the solution. That's great. Is there... Uh, did you undergo any extensive playtesting with these puzzles?
0: So most of the puzzles I playtest one time just to see how people are thinking about them and if there's anything that really draws attention away. Uh, Specifically, uh, last year I had... I had the monster puzzle where you had to put the monsters in order. And I had your brother Justin playtest that one for me just to go, okay, is there enough of a theme here? How do I get people to understand that I'm trying to go by challenge rating and slap these tiles in the right order? And he uh, went with it for a little bit. And he's like, okay, well, this is kind of tough. And that let me come up with a number of clues to give players as they go along. As the time ticks down, I usually go, okay, hey, roll roll an insight check for me just to see what you have. Or roll investigation for me, or possibly even roll arcana just to see if you can understand the arcane meanings of this.
1: Okay, so uh, one thing about that puzzle was that I seem to recall Justin believing that it was, like, incredibly hard, and then we got a more or less unchanged version of it, and we never actually got to doing the insight checks or the arcana checks because our specific group that we played with, uh, the one that I was in, just was like boom 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 there we go boom 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 there we go boom 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 oh that's wrong okay those were the two we weren't sure of there we go and it was uh it was just rapid fire like boom 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 we solved it without any difficulty so i I could see where some people would struggle with them and then wasn't there one uh one year that was about that spell suite in D &D that increases attributes like cat's grace uh, eagle's splendor or whatever
0: yeah the First year I, I ran it in the Temple of the Grinning God, there was a puzzle that was see my grace, see my see my grace, see my cunning, see my strength, or something along those lines.
1: And then there was a whole bunch of animal statuettes and we had to choose the right ones and, and I know Andrew got caught up on that because he's like, It's so subjective and, and when I did it. I, again, I was like, "Oh, well, cat's grace!" Like I, all of your puzzles that were like meta puzzles about D and D knowledge, I was like, "Yeah, I got this." And then the ones that were like, "Just look at things slightly askew, and that'll solve it for you." I was like, "What is going on?" Like the one with the uh, the one with the tunnels and the runes, right?
0: Yeah, that that was actually a puzzle that I kind of consider a failure. So the idea was. Uh, I had these uh, toilet paper roll tubes, and at the end of them, if you looked down them, you either saw a rune or you saw a placement for them. There was a door that had either one circle, two circles, or three circles, and a bunch of tiles that had the runes, and you were supposed to place the runes on the area that had the certain number of circles to get in. Well, it, at the end of the tube... There was markings, col- uh, different color-coded markings, that showed that this rune goes with this number of circles. And no one actually got around to being able to see that the first time. When when one person actually got it, he went, Oh, it can't be that simple. Is it? Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, the lighting in here isn't great for this. Like, it's even knowing what I'm supposed to be looking for, it's hard to see. And I didn't have enough hints for that one for people to, to get through it. And using the runes, people often thought that they had to form three-letter words.
1: Yeah, so, I remember that was that was what I was hung up on. I'm like, the runes, it's a three-letter word. I've, I've got to figure out, we just got to figure out what words we can spell from this and what word is going to let us in.
0: But yeah, so that one, was, I do consider it to be a failed puzzle. I might do something like that again where it requires your own personal perception but I, I probably won't
1: um, I do like once again I like how you some of your puzzles have kind of red herrings in them like you've got the one puzzle over there that we were look that I was admiring a little earlier that's, uh it's another one where you're building something from these like little wooden squares that you've glued together into patterns. But with that one, it kind of looks like it's supposed to be like 3D. And I know from when we solved it and also from when I looked at it just now and was reminded of it, that it's just flat. It's just, you just build like a flat surface. But I do remember the first time I looked at it trying to figure out I was able... Fortunately, I'm really good at mentally assembling things, and I was able to very quickly ascertain that there's no way you can make a proper cube out of this, and I kind of gave up on the idea that you want it to be table-shaped pretty early on, although that would be clever as well. But do you feel like... Are you throwing in these red herrings intentionally, or do they come as, like, an emergent practice of making these puzzles? Like, you start to build them, and you're like, oh, yeah, this might throw somebody off.
0: Some of them are intentional like the puzzle you were just talking about you need to assemble five of these pieces together to make a i believe it's a five by five square yeah but I needed something more because if if it was just those initial five pieces it would probably be too easy so I threw in a few more uh marked them all up with uh with different symbols
1: and marked them on the sides most notably
0: Yep, I marked them on the sides. That way, people were thinking, "Well, maybe I have to turn it this way." And then people started attempting to assemble it into a 3D shape or sim or figure, and that was just kind of a happy accident.
1: Yeah, it worked really well because it did. It did kind of catch us up for a moment. We were we were really looking into it. This was more of a discussion than an actual question, but we were talking about how riddles are kind of an iconic thing in dungeons and in dungeon crafting. They did back. Probably, probably even earlier than this in some sort of dungeon setting, but Tolkien specifically had Gollum asking Bilbo riddles, and of course the uh, uh, the door into the Mo- back door into Moria with the uh, speak friend and enter.
0: Yeah, those type of puzzles where the whole group had to think, or one person has to be especially clever, are are things that really inspire me. I mean, Dungeons and Dragons is about more than just combat, and don't get me wrong, every year I've had combat and they've been pretty intense combat.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, it's it's great game to discuss who got eaten by the Scarecrow King or how the heck you're supposed to beat that guy who has the power to hit you back for whatever you hit him for and all that. I mean, we had some really good discussion of how these particular scenarios played out. But honestly, in, in the presence of these puzzles, it, it kind of pales. I, they're great combat, but the puzzles and the riddles were kind of the focal point.
0: This year, the final combat was against the fortune teller, and there were these giant floating bits of stained glass that if they passed over you could would gash you up and do a ton of damage. And I thought that was a really interesting and fun combat. Uh, if you fought the Scarecrow King, he grew to giant size and got caught on fire and would throw you in inside of him like a giant wicker man. Oh yeah, yeah. Heck, you could even have fought the dragon god and just fight a dragon which did, did anyone fight the dragon god uh not no actually no not no not did. not this year last year a couple people attempted to fight him but at that point they were so battered and bruised that <laughs>
1: i don't know anyone who did that why why would someone try to fight the dragon god that sounds like a mistake probably would end up with you being immolated in the second round of combat after uh barely hurting him in the surprise round
0: Now, one of the other things I really want to point out, and people listening won't be able to see this, but as John said, we're going to be posting a bunch of images on the blog and on Facebook. I try to make this as immersive as possible. When we talked about this being a bespoke experience, we really mean it. I have a bunch of minis that I had custom painted for uh, my Halloween dungeons. All of the minis that are used to represent enemies are painted. The maps I hand make, and as players go to new areas, I don't have to draw them out. I just uh, slide out a new tile. It's on poster board and uh, stuff called gaming paper. It's essentially like Christmas wrapping paper, but with the one-inch squares on it. And this year I used Sirenscape to have ambient music which really got people into it and i also used a, a things called adventure sense from oddfish.com where As they went into a new room, I would open up one of these tins and it would smell kind of like what the room was supposed to smell like.
1: Yeah, everyone else seemed to enjoy that, but I really, I didn't like it at all because some of those rooms smelled kind of unpleasant. Um, I kind of like the one, the Holy Chapel one, that that was kind of pleasant and did make me think of like incense burning somewhere or something like that or, or the lingering scent of incense. But one of them, what was it? It was like a sewer smell or something.
0: There was the docks that had a rotting fish odor. Yeah, to it. yeah, it had a
1: really, it had a really offensive odor. I mean, it it wasn't truly putrid, like it didn't make me ill or anything, but it was just unpleasant. I was not a fan, but. Everyone else seemed really into it, so I guess it I guess it uh, must have been something. Uh, another question I wanted to ask was about the backdrop world. Now, these sessions had a four-hour time limit on them. Every single year, you've always enforced a four-hour time limit. In the very first year, uh, it was because we were transforming into jack-o'-lanterns. And I think every other year, it's been kind of just... Um,
0: it's mostly been there, so that way I don't get people... Just taking their time and spending six, seven, eight hours just trying to get through this dungeon in the safest way possible.
1: Yeah, it, it does, it does reward an element of risk and makes you want to try to take things on a little faster and throw caution to the wind. So you, you add that, and that doesn't really give us a lot of opportunity to explore the backdrop world. And I don't know, I felt like, I think it was Robert Frost who devised the system where when he wrote, he would come up with a whole huge backstory for every character, even if that story was never important in the book. And I kind of almost feel like that's what's going on. So can you tell me a little bit about the backdrop world and how much there actually is there?
0: Well, the the backdrop world is really just, it's there to make people feel immersed. In between the first and second year, as I said, I I ran a group through a a campaign. I decided to to set my Halloween games in this world. And there is a decent amount to it. Like, the reason that it's the lands of Eternal Autumn is the Scarecrow King was keeping the Winter Raven at bay. The Winter Raven was afraid of the Scarecrow King.
1: Right, as ravens tend to be.
0: And the minions of the Scarecrow King are the Scarecrow Knights, which were these big hulking guys in armor that you did not want to fight. And they, they were there kind of just to be the stick to keep the adventurers going, yeah, we'll play by the adventure. You know, we're not going to just go off and randomly explore.
1: And I, I kind of got the impression that they became Scarecrow Knights like through some act of coercion or force or some sort of dark magic, like the the unspeakable oath with Haster, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah,
1: I, and that kind of showed through. Like they seemed like sort of tortured figures that were that were equal parts of vicious, brutal enforcers and tortured souls who had made deals with the devil. And I I kind of digged that. And then like with the dragon, it seemed like there was a history there.
0: Yeah, the dragon actually came from a homebrew setting that I ran a number of years ago, but I I just like the idea of this undying dragon god of fire. Something that, not only is it a hard fight, but even if you do defeat him, he's just gonna come back and he's gonna be mad.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so... Um, so that was a thing that was interesting are you going to continue to develop this world is that the plan to make it uh, more of a defined setting so that in the future we might be able to have a little more interactivity with it I know that you want to keep for for the entire Halloween dungeon uh, idea you want to keep to the whole theme of one off adventure four hour time limit
0: I actually have been debating about compiling this all together and publishing it on like DM's guild or some other open source area there for people to go and use. I do have a pantheon of deities that do flesh out the world a bit. I do have a map of all the towns. There are different ones like Mezzatito and and the like. Just interesting names, interesting places for the the players to go. And I I might, uh, but who knows? I I might just keep it as this world for the Halloween games.
1: Okay, and I want to... And we kind of need to wrap it up at this point, but I kind of want to touch on some of the things that... I hope that our listeners are going to take from this when they consider making their own game like this. And I hope I hope that some of our listeners are going to try to run a game like this as a one-off with multiple sessions between multiple groups, sometimes even the same people running through the dungeon in different ways. But the things I want to talk about is things like your iconic moments. Um, I actually was really impressed when you pulled out that Beholder painted kind of like a jack-o'-lantern. That's pretty cool. As I recall, it's not... Not, like super pumpkin-y but it has like a pumpkin theme to it that really shows out if you if you know what it's supposed to be that this is the pumpkin king right
0: yeah it, it's supposed to be this giant jack lantern and part of my idea for this was running a weekly game it's hard to come up with really cool bits for the players to to interact with i mean you know we could talk about how uh, billy goat has a silver dagger and that's cool, that's the thing that players might write in the notes, but if I pulled out Billy Goat's Silver Dagger, suddenly they have something to hold on to, they have something to look at, they have something to really wrap their minds around.
1: Yeah, feel invested in and feel, like, personally available to them.
0: And so, uh, with this being a one-off, I wanted all of the pieces, all of the parts to be something that the players could interact with, something that they would uh, remember for years to come, something that they would look forward to in the next few years.
1: Right, so you had like, the iconic moments like the appearance of uh, the Jack Lantern puzzles that we could move and touch I really liked that a lot you had a whole suite of fully painted minis for both uh monsters and for uh, people who wanted to play pre-gen characters yeah available the, the use of a persistent map with uh bloodstains that appeared on it when someone died that was a was a really neat touch
0: lifted straight from dark souls whenever someone dies in dark souls they leave a blood stain and that just was really cool to me and so yep anytime hey someone else died in this room before you guys got here, someone earlier in the month died in this room. Hope you don't die the same way. And it's
1: interesting because a couple of times the bloodstain was kind of telling of like a trap or, or something that was going to happen. Like there was one where there's a whole suite of statues and then one statue had a bloodstain in front of it. and We were like, oh, <laughs> wonder what that is. And you're like, yeah, that's a good question. There's a bloodstain there. I can tell you that. And of course, that statue comes to life, but no, so there were, that was a pretty cool thing, and I know that in the first dungeon, you said that it was because, like, previous adventures had come through, but the other ones did seem like we were going through a unique experience and just reliving a whole thing, so I don't know if you've got, like, an actual explanation for why this happens, like, in Dark Souls, where there's, like, talk about weird timelines and stuff like that
0: nope nothing at all just just it's cool it's something to inspire a little bit of dread in the player it really
1: does it works for that and uh they also increased damage that you dealt and took from them when you stood on i remember early on it was like plus one or plus two but this year it was plus five which is tremendous especially when you're doing things like shooting off five magic missiles each doing an extra five damage that's pretty crazy
0: the biggest addition from this year that I really like is I have this bag full of silver charms and they're just small little things and as players opened up treasure chests throughout the dungeon they just kept finding these charms like oh this is going to be part of some big puzzle and after everything's over like so so what's with the charms oh yeah that's your guys's treasure you guys won each of you gets to keep one of the charms
1: yeah and I got an arrow and a lantern Uh, me and Beck got those and she was talking about maybe turning them into earrings or something, but I'm pretty excited about them. And they're just silly little charms, but it does make a huge difference and it gives me something to sort of remember the adventure by. Uh, Anyway, so that's our bespoke gaming experience, and we hope that in discussing this, we made you think about giving this sort of thing a try for yourself, because it's actually a really amazing experience and gives you an opportunity to play your game in a way that you might not
0: normally have played in.
1: So, up next.
0: It says here that it's RPG WTF.
1: Ah, yeah, we're going to discuss RPGs that are bizarre. Not necessarily good RPGs and not necessarily bad RPGs, but RPGs. RPGs that are truly strange and unusual and are played in a distinct manner or just have some really crazy setting material. So, anyway, that's been our episode of Save vs. Rant.
0: Thank you very much for listening. Jack Skellington once said, Well, what the heck? I
1: went and did my best. And by God, I really tasted something swell. And for a moment, why I even touched the sky, and at least I left some stories they can tell, I did!
0: Save vs. Rant is a tabletop gamers' guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience visit us at saveversusrant.com, or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at SaveVersusRant. We'd love to hear from you.